Rebecca Stevenson is our business commentator today. Rebecca is a senior uh, journalist at... Uh, remind me where you are, Rebecca. At Business Desk, Catherine. Thank you. I just had a brief pause. <laughs> I did not want to make a mistake. Um, thank no, you. I business Desk, that. very good. Uh, and thank you for your time. Now, we touched on this very briefly with our uh, US correspondent earlier, but I'm really interested. Uh, I know you keep a close watch on the way uh, union movements work in what is not always a very union-friendly economy called the United States. <laughs> and this is one of the biggest... Mm. Like, I kept having Wall Street moments. Um, remember, it was um, the dad who worked for the um, for the airline and there was a little naughty bit of insider trading trading that got mm. uh, the young guy on his way in Wall Street. So I straight away had a flashback. It really is part of <laughs> the kind of culture in the United States... It's perceived as part of the um, demise of a lot of Midwest states and in, a, in a, yes. a real sort of sense of disconnection from politics. It's got a huge place in history, and the auto workers are still pr- a proud industry who've pulled off uh, uh, an achievement here, Rebecca. Yeah, they really have. And, you know, the language that we've heard out of the United Auto Workers very strongly coming through is that this is a historic deal and that if union members stick together, and in this case, stand together, as they called this a stand-up strike, um, that they would get what they're asking for. And they are really, I think, celebrating now um, quite extraordinary deal that they've managed to strike by targeting the three big automakers in the U.S., at the same time, which was the first time um, that the union had done this. So they started striking at General Motors, Ford and Stellantis plants in September. Um, So last week, I think we saw the first chink in the armour of the auto workers where we saw Ford agree to a really chunky pay rise um, to United Auto Workers, 57,000 members. Uh, Now, what the union did was they really did target their strikes for the most productive plants and the most profitable plants. And they had sort of done this kind of ratcheting up of strike action over the time to slowly sort of take out more and more plants where the most profitable um, cars were being made and sort of strangled, I guess, um, the ability for those firms to get those vehicles out. Um, Now, Ford last week had agreed to this new deal. Um, It is quite significant. They've agreed to a 25% pay rise um, for their workers over four years. Um, They have agreed to an immediate bump of 11% for all workers, which was a much more generous um, than what it was offering at the beginning. Um, and I think that the really interesting thing was the speech that the UAW president gave when this first deal was struck. Um, we've now seen, obviously, over the weekend, Stellantis agree to a deal. And just today, this news come out that General Motors has also uh, come to the table as well. Um, so the UAW president, Sean Fang, said, we told these car makers to pony up, and they did. We won things nobody thought was possible. Um, he said that record profits for car makers mean record contracts for its auto workers. 
Um, and what he also said was that they knew last week that they were pretty close to a deal, but they also knew that if they were going to make sure that they got every penny possible for their workers, the companies needed a major push and it had to take the strike to a new phase and hit the companies with maximum effect. So last Monday, um, the union called on workers at Stellantis's biggest and most profitable plant to stand up and join the strike. On Tuesday, it called on 5,000 workers uh, to walk out at General Motors, our most profitable factory in Texas, where it makes its very popular SUVs, such as the Chevrolet Tahoe and the Cadillac Escalade, um, also a really big and profitable plant. And what Fain said was that Ford knew what was coming for them on Wednesday if it didn't strike a deal. Um, he called it checkmate. Um, in terms of that deal with Ford, I'll just run you through some of the numbers. It is quite extraordinary. This 25% wage increase across the life of the new contract. Starting wages will increase 68%. Top wages will rise by 33% um, to more than 40 US dollars an hour. And temporary workers, uh, which the union said had really been getting a rough deal, will see a 150% increase in their wages. Um, at some plants, some workers will get an immediate 85% wage increase. Now, to put that in perspective, the union has said that this 11% immediate wage increase is equivalent to all of the wage increases that Ford workers had received since 2007. And it also said that there was more in one year of this new Ford contract for its members than in the entirety of the previous totality of its contract, which was signed in 2019. Um, and it also said that workers will get four times more than what they got in 2019. And in terms of big takeaways, the union, of course, is trumpeting the success. It is saying that its workers have united in a way that it hasn't seen in years. They came together with one voice and told the big three that record profits mean they deserve record contracts too. Um, it also won a boost to pensions and an interesting um, little uh, piece of interest here, I think, is it also won the ability to strike over plant closures, which it said will also improve job security. Uh, the union said this means automakers can no longer devastate our communities and close plants with no consequences. Uh, we've seen similar big increases in the deal with Stellantis. Um, wages for most workers will rise by 25% over the next four and a half years. And the lowest paid workers at Stellantis could see wage increases of more than 165%. And Stellantis has agreed to reopen a plant in Illinois, which had been closed earlier this year. Um, so the union are absolutely thrilled, um, I think, particularly with being able to now strike yeah. around the plant closures and also getting this agreement to reopen a plant, um, which they say will add a thousand jobs. Uh, sorry. And they're also going to add another new plant as well, um, which is another thousand jobs. So what's so the take out of it? Tremendous. I mean, is it just a very highly unionized workforce compared to most in the United States first? And second, did they just get their timing and their tactics right? I think the tactics were excellent. Um, 
people weren't sure how this was going to roll out at the beginning because they didn't call for an immediate walkout. You know, they didn't ask. And we're talking about tens of thousands of employees across these automakers. You know, with Ford, it's about 57,000. Uh, Stellantis, the Chrysler car maker, we're talking about 43,000 employees. So they are significantly unionized workforces. But the tactic that the union employed here of just starting off with some sort of lower level plants and then just across since the middle of September when it began, ratcheting up the pressure to then last week, really putting the automakers on notice, hey, we're going to take out your most profitable plants now. Um, that obviously has got them the result that they wanted. There's something else here. and Does it speak to a sort of renewed strength in the US auto industry full stop? Uh, uh, and has it sort of had a revival in a particular niche kind of vehicle or what, Rebecca? Well, SUVs are massively popular. Um, as niche, we know, are there is still that. Um, there is still, uh, I guess, kind of cachet, if you can call it, around those really big American vehicles. You know, it is quite extraordinary when you travel to North America and Canada. Their vehicles are quite different, you know, to what we see here. Um, they are big. They are gutsy. They are these big um, cars. And they are very popular. And they've been incredible incredible earners um, for the automakers over the years. So I think it was really smart strategically to roll it out the way they did. And then after the sort of the strikes had been impacting them and seeing that their rivals were getting taken out, you know, Ford could obviously see the writing was on the wall and it becomes really untenable for them um, to not be able to make these vehicles, meet their numbers, hit their targets. Uh, so General Motors, who was the last to come to the party, it said last week that the strike action would cost it about US $200 million and it also withdrawn its profit forecast because it just didn't know, you know, when this was all going to be over. So they definitely hit the car makers where it hurt, but they got the results for their members and for their pay packets and also that increased job security for yep. them too. And if all those things can happen at once, that tells you something about uh, about the health of an industry. Now, Supi, mm. what's your take on it? It, it? it always felt like a David and Goliath uh, battle in some ways and second observation mm. was probably at that stage of very rapid growth where cash flow can very quickly become an issue, Rebecca. But what's your take on uh, what's unfolded the last well, 24 hours publicly anyway? Well, it's awfully sad. You know, I'd just say at the outset, you know, we have about 120 staff here of the online grocery startup who have been told that they won't be paid for the last couple of weeks of work. They won't get annual leave. They won't get holiday pay. So, you know, that's absolutely heartbreaking for them. And also, you know, Sarah Ball, I'm sure the founder of Supi will be feeling pretty, pretty miserable about how this has all unfolded. You know, new businesses to start up are hungry, cash gobbling beasts. And taking on these big two of supermarkets, you know, Woolworths and um, foodstuffs, that's no easy ask. You know, there's a lot, even if you're just an online online only grocer that needs to happen. You know, it did have a distribution center in South Auckland. You know, that needs to be manned by people. They need to be packing the boxes. They need to be people unloading the trucks. You know, it had to build an IT system in the background. It had to have a website, you know, they had to have customer service. You know, all of these things cost a lot of money. Um, we knew Supi needed more money. It had been at the Ice House 
um, showcase, uh, I think in August, uh, seeking about $3 million. Uh, we know that Icehouse Ventures had kicked in another million bucks uh, fairly recently. Um, we knew it needed more money. You know, it really wanted to expand. I think it probably got a little bit caught in between um, only operating in a couple of markets that it was able to serve. So it was in Auckland and had expanded out into Waikato. And because of that, you know, that does hamper your growth in a way because you're not servicing a big chunk of the nation. Um, so it needed more money. It couldn't get that money. On Friday, we are told a key investor basically turned off the tap and said, I'm, I'm not putting any more money in. Um, we saw two directors resign from the board on Friday. Um, they said they did this to allow Sarah Ball, the founder, to be able to make rapid decisions without uh, needing them involved and in being in Auckland because they weren't here. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Sarah's, Sarah Ball has felt that she's needed to call in administrators um, in a sign, I guess, of uh, how cash-strapped it was. Uh, the administrators from PwC are saying they don't have enough money to even market the company for sale. Very unlikely um, for any other outcome for it other than liquidation, unfortunately. So they got to 60,000 users. And just remind us of the model. Yeah, so it had a membership model. Um, so people would pay a $99 membership fee for free deliveries. Um, and then uh, effectively everything was just online only. So you'd go onto the website, choose what you wanted, or it also had sort of special boxes, packages that you could buy um, as well. And then that would be uh, shipped out to you, del delivered to you. Um Look, it always was saying that it was growing and getting new members, but it was hampered by that distribution. Um, I think, you know, there's just, you can't get away from needing warehouses. You need uh, bricks and mortar. You need boots and, on and the ground. And the cost of delivery deliver when, when fuel prices are through the roof. Yeah, and look, interest rates are also high. So everything has been hard. It's been a hard row. And this business, I think, was founded in 2021. You know, it hasn't been an easy environment. And as we know, um, you know, Woolworths, as it's newly rebranded and foodstuffs, they're pretty savvy operators. You know, uh, foodstuffs obviously has the co-op model, but then an overarching sort of corporate HQ that runs a lot of that back end for its store owners and Woolworths of course is a really big listed um, Australian business so they are incredibly well capitalised and then here we had Sarah Ball coming in and she did have backing from some startup investors like Icehouse but you know what a big task to take on and you know we saw Sarah talking a really good game about it you know up until very recently hoping that perhaps it could expand and have you know small format stores that are high tech well we've seen the her rivals go into that space you know I think Foursquare is a good example of what Sarah Ball and Sufi was perhaps trying to achieve we're seeing these new small unmanned uh, Foursquare stores popping up for example all over Auckland yeah. still owned um, by the big so players just though there. right and, and this brings yeah. us and back and they're there to fill that space well this brings know? us back though to the same issue which is price and hearing it again, we spoke first this morning to the night and day franchise, which were, interestingly, he said, uh, this is uh, Matthew Lane, he said that mm. night and day and Sarah Ball with Soupy and Tex Edwards, inveterate, um, you know, kind of monopoly <laughs> um, investigator, were the three, the three submitted to the Commerce Commission on the restructuring. 
which just tells mm. you everything you need to know uh, about um, what new players are, are up against. And uh, he alluded to it, and like, consumers come out and be blunt about it. The response to that Commerce Commission report just did not go far enough to force change. And, and when you are buying your at wholesale prices that are higher than your competitors, how the hell are you supposed to compete? Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, you know, we saw Duncan Webb, who was the former Commerce and Consumer Affairs Minister before uh, Labor kind of uh, lost the election, say that if it was back, you know, it would fund and help to fund some rivals to come in there. Um, and Sarah Ball had said that, you know, one of the barriers that she faced in having this duopoly-powered market is that investors don't want to put money into new players because it is so difficult, yep. and they know they are up against it. Okay. Um, it's really tough. Yeah, it is. Well, it's tough the way things are structured. Now, Simplicity, and we had a lengthy interview uh, with uh, Sam Stubbs yesterday. I- I'm curious as to your take on, on, on what's happening here and, and the appeal to investors. 25,000 homes, <clears throat> excuse me, it's aiming to, to build over the next 10 to 15 years. It's got three parts to its model. Uh, but when you're offering investors what looks like will uh, in time be or be slightly ahead of um, term deposits in the bank, you're left wondering why would you, why would you? What's your take of what's proposed here? Well, look, I've actually spoken to someone who has pumped a significant amount of money into simplicity. And I think the people who have, you know, a bit of extra money lying around, they're doing it because they want to see some change and they want to see new players into the market and they want to see first home buyers and KiwiSaver investors get an opportunity to get into housing too. So, 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 so it's more than a pure dollar investment decision. It's a, it's an investment community or kind of New Zealand Inc. investment alongside a return, they believe, will will do as well as a um, cash deposit. I did make the point that it won't have the bank guarantee scheme, which I think comes in. When does that come in on the first $100,000? Is it it next year or this year? Yeah, um, that's a good question. You both need to scratch your heads and go back and look at that. that, Yeah, Yeah. But Um, but yeah, I think it's a philosophical question of people wanting wanting to get behind simplicity and wanting to see someone else in this space succeed and thinking, hey, well, if I'm going to invest in something, why not invest in simplicity? People either, I think, love or hate Sam Stubbs for various reasons. You know, if you're more of a sort of a, a, an active investment manager who's taken pot shots from Sam Stubbs over the years, you perhaps don't look at him quite so kindly. And then there are other people who think it's fantastic to see and um, KiwiSaver doing this. And well, this well, is what they hoped that KiwiSaver would yeah. be and become, something that invests in New Zealand and things for New Zealanders rather than seeing, you know, index funds uh with money pumped into, you know, Apple and, and overseas companies. Um, so I think for some people, they just see it as, you know, hooray, it's great. But Let's reminder also that this is a voluntary fund. This, this, this is a fund you choose to be part of um, because the, the issue with the Kiwi the KiwiSaver funds, and he's made the point many times, that the institutional investors between ACC 
the New Zealand Super Fund and the individual KiwiSaver funds are getting up around $200 billion and well on their way there, right? But their main job, thank you, is to have your and my retirement money. But this is a fund you can opt to be in. This is a specific fund you can go into. And, and, and look, it is interesting that there's this overlap between what you might perceive as a good enough return but wanting to be part of something that actually gets something done. It's a, a step away mm-hmm. from always expecting the government to to do these big jobs, right? Um, or, or to feeling like you're entirely at the hands of a very complex construction system. Um, so their pitch is their pitch of how they're going to do this pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think you know they are on their way. You know they've already started up simplicity living. You know they are breaking ground. I think on uh, one of their biggest their biggest new project, um, simplicity living has already started to build the first of what it expects will be ten thousand homes. And so this new fund is going to get in behind that and really help them to crank out um, some of these homes. It's kind of an interesting flip on looking at, hey, we need to get away from homes and investment, um, which people say about our economy Yeah, but this is built to rent. Uh, This is built to rent, remember, and it's also uh, part of its offering is about uh, competitive, if not better than market rates, mortgages, and part of it's going into community uh, housing um, as well. So it, it's not like it's buying and selling the same property round in circles. Its intention is new property. Yeah, that's right. And it's um, it's interesting, you know, uh, if you're a KiwiSaver, a Simplicity KiwiSaver member, you know, it's a, it's a good option for you to look at. Um, I know I have heard from some other Simplicity investors who've been involved with Simplicity funds and there has been a little bit of disquiet, I guess if you can call it from some people about seeing that some of their funds are now holding, you know, 7, 5, 7% or up to 10% um, in some of their funds of Simplicity related funds and companies. But on the flip side, you have other investors that just think, hey, we need more of this. This is great. We can get and use our money to support New Zealanders to sort of decouple, I guess, from the traditional mortgage system and see it, I guess, as a kind of a virtuous um, circle of investment. So, so just, clarify, just clarify for me, this new fund is one you can go into as an investor, but are you saying a proportion of Simplicity's own KiwiSaver investments are already in these initiatives? Or similar initiatives. Some of them are, yeah, okay. some of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, now, anyone who's a Simplicity member, you can jump online and check it out on Simplicity's uh, website. It has little sort of graphs where you can see exactly how much. Uh, I think the Balance Fund, I think, had about 10% exposure. Some of the other funds have sort of 5 and five and 7% exposure to Simplicity Investments. So it's certainly not, you know, the majority of all yeah. the lion's share. However, you know, some investors did get a involved with simplicity originally because um, the sort of message was we're going to be passive, we're going to be indexed and we're going to just be cheaper and lower costs. Over time, simplicity has changed and Sam has, and Stubbs and simplicity have been very upfront about that. You know, they have been talked a lot about their um, mission, I guess, if you can call it, and, and wanting to do some different things. And this fund is an extension and a continuation, I guess, of, of how we've seen Simplicity change since it was founded. Thank you. Rebecca Stevens is a senior journalist at Business Desk.